Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Coming to you uh, on a Monday, just hours before the Milwaukee Bucks game is played, and coming to you just a few days after another back-to-back. It seems like that is the story of the season so far. We want to bring you a review, a preview, and a breakdown. That's how this show is going to go. We want to review the last week of games, the good and the bad, each one of us uh, going through what we've seen recently out of the Pistons then preview what is to come with games over the next week until we come to you again, and then also break down how things are looking in the East, how this team is playing, and some big questions about the Pistons that are left out there. Many of those questions coming from some of you, some of the community members of the Detroit Bad Boys Nation. So thank you again for supporting this podcast. You can continue to do so by finding us on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Detroit Bad Boys. Make sure to subscribe. Newest episodes are up as soon as they are posted. You can also find this podcast on Blog Talk Radio. And as I've said before, the home for this wonderful little podcast, DetroitBadBoys.com. New episodes posted as soon as they are up. And joining me this week, as he does every week, and sounding very professional, we're all on microphones. The most professional edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Ben, how you doing? Ben Galker. I'm feeling so good. This mic, this headset. I hope I sound as good as I feel. I guess that's all I can say. <laughs> you do. I promise you, you do. And also joining us this week, editor of the Detroit Bad Boys, Sean Core. How you doing, Sean? Pretty good. Ready to bring the professionalism down a notch. <laughs> Keep things even keel. I like it. Uh, so what we've seen over the last week since the last time we talked is the Pistons played believe they've played four games since last time we've uh we chatted which was uh the end of the west coast trip at the lakers uh then a home win surprising win against cleveland and then winning the first part of that back-to-back the away game at minnesota a nice 10-point win over the timberwolves and just two days ago a loss to the wizards 97 95 so two and two there's quite a bit to take from that 2-2 two and two because we saw, I think, many different faces of this Pistons team for this season. So, Sean, I'll start with you. What was the good and the bad from the last few games you've seen from the Pistons? The good, definitely, for me is that the effort level and intensity was back in the games. Uh, I was a little afraid after the tail end of that West Coast swing that the kind of things we were seeing might be a mirage, might have been short-lived. But uh, starting with the Cleveland game, they kind of got back to – the kind of effort, high-intensity defense they've been playing for most of the year. And so it gives me a little more comfort that the defense is going to be there all season. Uh, The bad, I guess, is that all the flaws that this team has are not mirages. They're pretty much set in stone. There's issues with three-point shooting. There's issues with the the offense in general, and especially with the bench. So – I don't think those are going away anytime soon, so I wouldn't be surprised if we start a lot the podcast every week talking about a 500-type record for our, until probably Brandon Jennings gets back because I just don't see how these flaws get improved pretty much. Yeah, Ben, I agree with you. Of those flaws that Sean just covered, which one, which one of those do you think could be fixed before uh, the return of Brandon Jennings? I think the three-point shooting has a chance to improve. 
look at guys like Anthony Tolliver. I guess he's probably the main one I would have in view. He still can't throw the ball in the ocean right now. <laughs> um, I think the shooting at, at shooting guard is ironically still a huge question mark, and, and that may not improve. But uh, I like our chances at improving on the three ball. We're getting uh, decent looks from deep. We still take some silly ones, but we're getting decent looks, and I think that could improve at least a little bit. Yeah, and that should help when we find ourselves in games uh, like we did against the Wizards, where if the shooting from the bench just improved even slightly, it's not like we're asking for something miraculous. We're just looking for players to get back to really their career averages or even just a notch below because you're right, players like Tolliver are struggling so mightily this season. Steve Blake I would include in that, although he's been better recently. It's a, just a slight improvement could have done so much in games against the Lakers and against the Wizards. Uh, and for anyone who missed that Wizards game, again, it was a very similar storyline to many of the Pistons' losses this season. A lead in the third quarter, the team plays well, the bench comes in to relieve the starting five, and with five bench players on the floor, we see an 11-point lead evaporate, and then we find ourselves having to try to fight back in the fourth quarter. So it was just a little bit more of the same was the last time we saw the Pistons in that Wizards game. To be in that spot where we had blown another lead, uh, it's just too bad. It's too bad that time and time again, it seems, we're having to rely on the starters coming into the third quarter to start the second half. We are hoping that the third quarter is big enough to hold on to a lead. And I just don't think that's something that we can sustain throughout the season is is hoping we can run up these leads in the third quarter when guys are fresh. I, I don't know if that's a good a good formula for success for this team. Well, 15 points from the bench against the Wizards. 15 points. That's terrible. I mean, Anthony Tolliver with the donut. I mean, I think everybody sort of has a soft spot for Tolliver after last season. He's obviously a bench player, but I think a lot of people really love the way that he played, uh, not just what he produced, but how he played. This year, I, I mean, I see him playing hard, but man, his production has been abysmal. And to put up a donut in an important game, it, it's just got to get better. He's got He's got to perform better than that. It's sort of inexplicably bad. Like, you can't explain that he's this poor. He's never been this bad before. So it's one of those things where you just keep expecting today will be the day that he turns it around, and it's just not happening. And I guess it begs the question, when do you consider it a lost season or when do you for him, or when do you consider going elsewhere for those minutes? Yeah, when we traded for him, I, I was really quite surprised, and I didn't really expect him to play all that much. Obviously, Van Gundy had something else in view. But I remember looking into him a bit and seeing how inconsistent his three-point shooting was mm -hmm. over the course of his career, which is really kind of uncommon. And if you look back at 11-12, he played for Minnesota, he played 882 minutes, and he shot 24.8% from three, which is just one percentage point worse than he's doing this year. So while I'm still optimistic that he's going to round into form a little bit, he has had a couple seasons where his three-point shot just didn't fall for the bulk of the year. So that, you know, that's a little bit concerning. The optimist in me this season is a little bit concerned about that, I think. Definitely. And I think he brings something to the locker room. I think there's some sort of intangible factor with Anthony Tolliver that Stan Van Gundy really respects. I think he likes that veteran presence. 
Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised the more we see the lineup staggered and the more we see Ursan Ilyasova and Marcus Morris play with bench units. And I kind of ex- expect that. I know we've talked about uh, why this you know staggering of the starters hasn't happened. But I think if we start to see that more, it would be minutes away from Tolliver just because Morris and Ilyasova would be taking those stretch four minutes away from him. And I think right now that might be something we need to do. Uh, is give those minutes to another wing player. So if it's Bullock or Stanley Johnson, those would be the two to maybe benefit from less minutes for Tolliver if he continues to struggle. Uh, because right now, you're right, it's just it's not what we need from that spot. And it's also we don't see enough from him defensively that, well, if he's struggling, at least he's still a plus defender. I'm not sure if he, uh, how much he really brings to us on the, on the defensive end as well. Well, the big issue is that there's nobody behind him that's – necessarily earning more minutes i mean they keep putting reggie bullock out there for a few minutes at a time and he's done absolutely nothing with any of it and stanley johnson is a rookie who's having his ups and downs so it's not like if you solidify him in the uh, rotation and give him even more minutes you're going to see an uptick from the bench at all it's just it's total crapshoot right now and there just doesn't seem to be any really good solutions it kind of makes me wonder when do you play the long game and make sure that you don't harm, you know, future assets or the ability of the team? And when do you say to yourself, we have the kind of starting unit to make the playoffs and be dangerous in the playoffs. Maybe we make a trade to bolster the bench. Is it worth it? Is it way too, is it something you do sooner than later? Is it something you evaluate at the trade deadline or is it just totally off the table because this team is still in a rebuilding mode where you don't give away those kind of assets? I would say as soon as Brandon Jennings has his legs back, that's the time to to make a move if you're going to make a move. Because I think Brandon Jennings can help. I mean, he's not he's not the miracle drug that's going to cure everything, but I think he can help. And I think the Pistons and the East Eastern Conference in general has improved, but I think the Pistons are good enough to give someone a scare. I mean, you look look at what they did to the Cavaliers this past week. They can obviously beat anyone on any given night. And in any seven-game series, anything can happen. So for me, it would be, let's see when Jen- Jennings is back, if he's healthy, the extent to which he can contribute and how, and then maybe try to plug a hole or, or maybe even use him as a chip, um, depending on how his value is. But to me, that would be the timing. So we're looking at, what, January, mid-January, hopefully? Right. I think we, we had, did get some good news this week about Jennings' recovery, but I think you're right, that timetable of after Christmas, sometime during the new year, I think is when we should expect him back. And I, I agree with you. I think that's the time that we should look around and see what assets are worth holding on to and which ones uh, maybe we can find something else, someone else in the NBA uh, who could be a benefit for this team. Um, one thing that was brought up actually from the Detroit Bad Boys Twitter handle was uh, Ryan Anderson possibly being someone that the Pistons could look at at the deadline. Right now, they're struggling, and if they're out of the playoff picture by the middle of January, the West is, it's not like the Eastern Conference. It's not like you can fight back the same way. So if they're struggling still a month from now, maybe Ryan Anderson is someone we can look at. I also uh, noticed some fans on Twitter talking about Thad Young of Brooklyn. I'm not sure if that's someone that gets me that excited, but I think stretch four is the position we've always talked about as being the position we should look to improve. That was my Ryan Anderson uh, pining on Twitter, and it just makes me think, and it kind of goes back to my original question is, 
the fan in me wants to kind of uh, buy now, buy into this team, solidify its playoff chances. So what is Ryan Anderson, who would be a rental because he's got an expiring contract, what is a player like that worth? Because he'd essentially be as good or maybe even better than Ilyasova for the rest of the season. So that gives you a very deep stretch for rotation. Is it worth a first-round pick for a team that might not even make the playoffs if things don't break right? Is it worth selling a first-round pick because you believe in yourself enough where you think that pick will be in the mid to low 20s? Or is that just off the table to, Mm -hmm. to do something like that? Yeah, and I had some of the same questions, so I did what many Pistons fans have probably done over the last few years. I fired up the trade machine. I pulled up the Wikipedia page for the CBA to make sure what I was doing was actually legal, and I was looking at how could we possibly improve this team taking on a player like Ryan Anderson without having to give up some of the players I like. And I included Brandon Jennings in that because even when he returns, I think he could be so important to the bench and I would like to see what he can do once he's healthy. That wasn't a player I wanted to give up. And I think it would be difficult without giving up picks. I I think we could make the contracts work with guys like Tolliver and Steve Blake's deals being expiring deals in the two to $3 million range. We probably could make it work for a player like Ryan Anderson, but you're right. Is it worth the rental to give up a first round pick? And, And right now I'm not sure. I think it will depend maybe how, how much in the playoff picture we are when we start to really consider those conversations. What do you think, Ben? Are we talking crazy? I wouldn't give up a first-round pick for Ryan Anderson. A healthy Ryan Anderson, though, is a very nice compliment. I think that almost goes without saying. It's kind of a Captain Obvious. You know, it's, <laughs> He's a perfect fit for Van Gundy's system, as he obviously proved when he played for him. Um, the one thing I would ask, though, is I think Anderson's probably – capable of a little more volume than Ilyasova. But if you look at what Ilyasova is doing in, what, 25 or so minutes a game, he's shooting 45% from deep. Look at Ryan Anderson, 37, 38% from deep. Mm -hmm. I guess I would wonder, would there be a way to utilize or maximize something about Ryan Anderson's game that doesn't already appear in Ilyasova's game. Like, I look at the way the offense is structured. It's primarily Reggie Jackson with the ball and Marcus Morris in the mid-post. Is there something that Ryan Anderson adds other than maybe being capable of more minutes than Ersan Ilyasova, given the system we currently have in place? And nothing, it's the first time I've thought about this, but nothing jumps out at me sort of, you know, off the top. Um, You know, he's not a real strong post player or anything. So, you know, I don't know. And Ilyas, go go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. I was just going to say that Ilyasova also has proven over his career to be a better rebounder than Ryan Anderson, and that's something that SVG really covets. It's part of the reason he was so excited about adding Ursan to this team was because he's a, a very good rebounder. That's something that if you went to a player like Ryan Anderson, who offensively probably. maybe works better at that stretch for and you're right it's tough to say that just because we know Ursan is playing so well in his current role so I don't I don't know I I think there are certain things where he would be a, a, a plus and a minus there are definitely pros and cons to taking on a player like that but it is someone who has been successful under SVG in the past and also I think there's just so much about New Orleans that's broken right now I think some of those shooting numbers would improve if the spacing was in, was improved and if he was on a team like the Pistons. So I think some of that 
would kind of equal out. But again, yeah. it's, it's tough to say. And one of the reasons I, I mentioned Ryan Anderson on Twitter was only because that's essentially one of the first teams in the league that's probably going to be in sell mode because they're just falling so far out of a, a very competitive West that, and with an expiring contract, I mean, I, I view Ryan Anderson as a player the Pistons will be interested in in the offseason if they didn't trade for him. So maybe you could poach him early, kind of like the Reggie Jackson situation where they, they didn't give up too much to get him for the tail end of the season. And he just makes so much sense. Even if Ryan Anderson came off the bench to spell Ilyasova or if he's struggling to kind of fill those minutes, he's, you know, at this point, light years ahead of where Tolliver is right now. And if you just have one player hitting shots off the bench, it allows Stanley Johnson to not force it. It allows Spencer Dinwiddie to actually be a distributive point guard. And it just lets people fall into their assigned roles if somebody's producing off that bench. And right now, nobody is. Right. And that would be part of the question for me as well, is what are we having to give up? Because if you add Ryan Anderson to this team and hold on to Urson and Marcus Morris, maybe the distribution of minutes between them adds a player to that bench that can score and could be someone that that we can go to the way we have with Marcus Morris in certain moments where he's bailed out the offense for the starters. We need that player, I think, for the bench unit as well. So uh, the return of Brandon Jennings and adding a player like that would be great. I think it's a little greedy to think we could do all of that, though. We would have to give something up for a player like that. And that's that's what I'm not sure about, if it would be worth it to look into someone like that. Carmelo Anthony is one that, for some reason, I find myself talking to people uh, at, at my office about and how great Carmelo Anthony would be in SVG's system. I'm not sure if I see it, and I'm not sure if Carmelo would be happy to play in Detroit. But that's another one where I fire up the trade machine and then I quickly become very upset looking at that contract, trying to make it work. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one to try and fit. So right now I have in front of me the Eastern Conference standings, and the Pistons right now a half game out of the East if the playoffs started today behind the Knicks, Celtics, and Wizards, who are all tied at a 600-ish um, win percentage. So the Pistons are a half game out, definitely still in it, you know, seven and six, although the, all six of those losses have come in the last 10 games. What are you guys seeing in the East right now for just playoff projection as it stands? Are there teams in the playoffs that you don't expect will be there uh, a few months from now? Anyone in that top eight? Well, I'm certainly surprised at how well the Knicks are playing. And uh, a lot of that has to do with their rookie, Kristaps Porzingis. And so... I mean, if he's the real deal all season and doesn't hit a rookie wall or a prolonged slump where he's not giving them things on offense, then they'll be in the playoff picture all year. I think you have to look at Boston's depth and the way they're coached and say they'll be in it all year. There's no reason to think the Wizards, Hawks, and Pacers aren't going to be playing competitive basketball. So really what you're seeing is just the East has quickly become a more competitive conference. So... uh, I mean, Detroit is going to be in it. I think they've proven that they're a playoff quality, playoff capable team, but it's going to be difficult for them to claw their way into it. They're they're not going to fall backwards into it with a below 500 record like they almost did last year or could have last year. Yeah, I agree. And also I, I look at teams like the Celtics and Knicks, and it is surprising, right, to see the Knicks in that spot. But when you are playing 16 of your games each season against the Nets, 76ers, Raptors, and Celtics, all the other teams in that Atlantic division, that's a nice position to be in. And that's something the 
Pistons fans have to keep in mind, uh, besides Milwaukee, everyone in our division is playing very well right now. And I think while our schedule has been difficult so far, some of those teams in the Atlantic have the benefit of being in a pretty easy division, uh, especially with how Brooklyn and Philly have started the season. So I expect Boston and New York to possibly hang around 500, unless at some point this whole Chris Stapps, he just, you know, I don't know, unless that stops working or if just, you know, New York starts playing terrible again. But I expect those teams to be right on that bubble. And that just adds teams to our bubble that maybe we didn't expect in the East this season. What about you, Ben? Any any surprises? Anyone you can see falling off? The Pistons are right about where I expected them to be. Actually, a little better in terms of wins and losses because I, I thought they would struggle a little bit more early. Um, I'm not totally sold on the Knicks, I think, like a lot of people, and I agree with everything Sean said about them. Um, I think the Celtics could end up struggling a bit. I mean, I, I agree that they're well-coached, and I like that roster in terms of, you know, it's flexible, it's competitive for a 500 and so, or so record. Um, but then the other team that surprised me quite a bit right now is Charlotte. Um, I really didn't expect them to be this competitive, especially out of the gate. So I still think the Pistons are going to be fighting with four or five teams for the six through eight seed, but there's nobody this early in the season that looks to me like the easy target other than the Knicks that's going to drop out of the playoffs, you know, as sort of an obvious suspect. The East is better this year than they've been. I mean, you look at Brooklyn and Philly, yeah, they're going to be terrible. They're going to continue to be terrible. Um, but Milwaukee, we could expect them to play even better than they are now. They're sitting at five and eight. Um, Orlando, I, I still kind of expect them to, to struggle a little bit as well. But I think the Pistons are going to be in much more of a dogfight in spite of the fact that they're a playoff caliber team. The, everyone else around them has also gotten better, uh, and there's a couple teams who are even better than we thought they'd be. Yeah, I know all three of us were we were on the season preview episode, and we talked about some of these teams in the Eastern Conference, so much so that we ended up extending that into another episode. Uh, and one team that I know we fought back and forth quite a bit about was the Indiana Pacers, who at 8-5 and five look like one of the better teams in the East right now, especially in their last 10 games. They've been 8-2, and two, and in that 10-game stretch, I saw... Uh, something that ESPN put out about their John Hollinger rankings was the Pacers have played with the best net rating over their last 10 games in the Eastern Conference, uh, which I thought was just fascinating that they played that well with a lineup that, again, I feel confident when I compare the Pistons to the Pacers, but uh, we saw the Pacers beat this team already, and that's the team in the top five I that doesn't quite make sense to me. Of those top five teams in the East, that's the one that I would be surprised if they continue to to play at that level. But Sean, I know you were you were pretty high in the Pacers, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing in the last 10 games is just, you know, Paul George is always a really good player, but sometimes he gets into these modes where he plays MVP caliber offense to go with his very good defense. Now, uh, it doesn't usually sustain itself. A couple years ago, uh, he had a first month or two of the season where everybody thought, okay, now he's an MVP level player. He's playing otherworldly offense and it kind of fell back down to earth so I don't think he's gonna play at this high level the whole season but I do think they're a a competitive quality basketball team if uh, I'm trying to come up with a team that might be not necessarily fool's gold but maybe somebody that'll fall back down to earth it's actually uh, the current two seed which is only a team that's eight and four that's the Miami Heat they have had uh, one of the easiest schedules in the Eastern Conference they're They've had uh, 
the tw- 27th ranked strength of schedule so far. They've had one of the most home games in the NBA. They've played, I think, nine home games compared to the Pistons' five home games. And uh, they haven't played as many games total, I don't think, as Detroit, which is one of the top numbers of games this early in the season. So those are the kind of things that start evening out. And then when when they get their schedule crunched and they're playing some more on the road, that's when you think that teams lose inexplicably to teams like the Lakers or the Kings or something like that, where you just kind of drop a winnable game. So obviously they have a hell of a good start being the second seed, but uh, they're the kind of team where I think they're, they're more at that eighth seed, seventh seed level than at the two seed. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the Heat, and I actually wanted to talk about that team a little bit more. The Pistons will play the Heat on Wednesday this week, and it's a team that uh, when I was just kind of looking through some of the NBA stats that are available on ESPN and a, a few other sites, uh, the Heat and Pistons so far this season have been very comparable uh, in points per game, opponents points per game, and I couldn't quite figure out, like like you said, Sean, how Miami has played this well. A big part of it is that schedule. You're right. And another part of it is how poorly the other, the opponents are playing. The opponent field goal percentage, it's the lowest in the NBA, uh, teams playing against the Heat. Part of that is is the Heat defense, which I think is probably one of the, I don't know, maybe a top 10 defense in the league, probably in the top half. But I don't expect that to continue. And part of it is because they've played a pretty easy schedule. So that's a matchup on Wednesday I'm very interested to see is how we play against the Heat because across the board it's we play very similarly, a very similar pace, very similar in terms of three-point shot attempts and, and where our offense is being generated, uh, even the defensive rating very similar. So I'm very interested to see that game because I agree with you. Once that schedule starts to pick up for the Heat, that's a team I expect will fall down the, the rankings a bit in the East. Oh, the Wizards. The Wizards, too, only playing 10 games to this point in the season. Even though they've beaten uh, the Pistons, that's another team I see in that 6-8 through eight spot uh, that, that we'll be fighting with. Yeah, they, they just, I mean, they have, they're kind of like the Pistons, I suppose, where they're just a little top-heavy. They don't have the depth they need. So if one of their star players, Beeler, Wall, kind of has a, a misstep game, then they could lose to anybody. So uh, it's just the the parity in the East this year is pretty amazing. Nobody's really staked a claim other than Cleveland to being, uh, I won't say a dominant team, but a clear second-tier team. I think it's from 2 to 10, you could pick almost anybody to, to go the rest of the way. And to kind of bring this back to our trade conversation and also looking at the standings in the East, uh, the Brooklyn Nets at 2-11. and 11. It, it seems that their season may be over before it really, you know, even gets going. But at 2-11, and 11, even in the East, I think it will be difficult. And I know that was a team we didn't really expect to compete this season. I know last year there were some rumors about Joe Johnson being on the trade market. And again, this year, uh, it seems Brooklyn will be interested in being sellers at the trade deadline. Anyone on some of those bottom teams in the East that maybe you want to keep your eye on? And Brooklyn's the one for me. What do you think? I man? want nothing to do with <laughs> Joe. Uh, he, to me, is he's the kind of player, given the way that I look at the game of basketball, that is always just enormously overvalued because he's got a really pretty looking stroke and he can score points. But I, I feel like the rest of his game is just really hollow. And if you're looking at some of the advanced metrics this year, his performance has just been absolutely terrible. Sad Young 
would be an interesting get, in my opinion. He's he's a little bit unpredictable. He can be a little bit all over the place. Um, the thing I would like about him is if you were bringing him off the bench, the one thing I think you can expect from him is a whole lot of energy. And I'm not sure we have a ton of that other than maybe Anthony Tolliver, who hasn't been very good, as we've already talked about. So, yeah, maybe Thaddeus Young. Um, Joe Johnson passed. Thaddeus Young would be interesting to me. Is Jarrett Jack a useless player at this point? Hmm. That's, that's a, good, a great question. It is a good question, yeah. And that's the other position the Pistons will probably be thinking about is that, that backup point guard spot. Uh, part of that will depend on the return of Jennings, but you're right. Is Jarrett Jack someone that could give this team something? I don't, I don't know. That's someone I would have to investigate a bit. I know that he has an unguaranteed deal after this season, so it's not like a big financial commitment. But I honestly, I think he's played pretty awful this year. Now, I mean, he might be a player that you buy low on because his terrible play might be a product of his environment where there's no good offensive players, so he's just jacking up crazy shots, no pun intended. Uh, and you put him on a, a more competitive team and he might be able to perform. But, I mean... That's the kind of player where you probably just get him for basically nothing. And it's only $6 million, so it's pretty easy to, to make the money work. But maybe he's just as much of a a done product as Joe Johnson at this point, and it wouldn't be worth it. While we're playing uh, the role of Vulture on the Brooklyn Nets, any thoughts about <laughs> Andrea Bargnani? Would that be someone? Nope. <laughs> Big old pass. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. fine. We'll move right along then. <laughs> I was just going to just name every player. <laughs> it's really interesting how that roster is put together. I know they're having some issues with, you know, changeover and ownership and everything. And um, it's definitely a team that if tanking wasn't the plan, it is now. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if they thought that would be a, if this was going to be a successful season. But well, I, I mean, honestly, well because they're going to lose their pick no matter what to the Celtics. Speaking of vultures, I think they any Celtics fan is just in an absolute glee over watching the uh, Nets suffer like this. But I wouldn't be surprised if Brooklyn made a trade for a first-round pick just to save face. I don't even know if they could get a first-round pick for any of these players. But I think since they're going to give up a high lottery pick, they're going to want to look to at least have something coming out of this draft. So they're they're definitely a team that's willing to sell for a price because they at this point they just have to save face yeah that's very true and you're right there's not anyone that we're talking about that would be worth giving up a first round pick under any circumstance even if we really protected a first i'm sure that's not even what they would be looking for but uh thad young would not be worth that no there's really nobody it's kind of sad. I don't know. They they play in this big, beautiful arena. No one goes to the games. The team has been terrible. You know, Philly, at least, you've got to trust the process. Brooklyn, I'm not sure what you trust. Well, I think you trust that this was an experiment where they went all in and they knew this was the consequence. So True. unlike the Knicks, who had the same problem but then kept trying to deny reality and trade for another star and make it worse and trade for another star and make it worse, I think the Nets are in a position where they're they are just going to bite the bullet. They're going to give away these assets in the trades. They're going to be terrible, and they're going to have a clean slate eventually. So, I mean, for them, it's just a waiting game and trying to draft well for the picks they do have and just wait until all the badness goes away and hope they just don't make it worse. And the Pistons will actually be playing 
probably when we record this podcast next, uh, Pistons Brooklyn next Sunday at six. Uh, so we'll get to see that team up close on next Sunday. I was going to say, I, I can't handle another Pistons loss to a, a team like that. Like they should have beaten the Lakers. They have to beat one of these bottom feeding teams. I want to see at least one blowout where I can relax for most of the fourth quarter. That would just, it would make my mental health that much better. Right. Even in our biggest win of the season, Portland, you couldn't really rest until, what, eight minutes left in the fourth quarter? So we went into that fourth quarter in, in a tight game. But you're right. It would be nice if we could just dominate one of these teams that we clearly have a, you know, we have a plan and we seem to be constructed in a way that's, you know, makes some sense. The, the Sacramento and L.A. losses. Yeah, I don't want to see any more losses like that. Uh, so Brooklyn, yeah, that's hopefully a team that we can we can beat. It would be nice to not have to worry about a fourth quarter. You're right. Uh, but I actually wanted to just kind of look forward on the schedule now, uh, talking about some of these teams that we've just covered and maybe further previewing some of these teams and the upcoming matchups. Uh, before we come to you uh, next time, the Pistons will play at Milwaukee on Monday. Wednesday, a home game against Miami. Friday, a road game for Oklahoma City. And Sunday, also on the road for Brooklyn. Uh, starting with Milwaukee, the Bucks struggling so far this season. Uh, a game in this division that I think will be pretty important uh, for you know for us to stay above 500. What have you seen uh, out of Milwaukee so far, Sean? I know we started to talk a little bit about that team. Is this what you expected from Milwaukee this season? I'm not even sure what I expected, only because there was something so unique about the way they played defense last year and the way they m- manufactured their offense that. You kind of knew it was a very delicate balance, and it it did make sense for me for them to add a player like Greg Monroe, but at the same time, when it's not there anymore, it's it's not exactly surprising that they're not sort of recapturing that magic. Mm -hmm. But thinking about, you know, uh, big picture, their defense is the worst in the NBA through 13 games. That is absolutely shocking to me because even though – I'm 0% a believer in Michael Carter-Williams as a NBA point guard. I thought he was somebody that could play some defense. And adding that kind of player to all those other perimeter defensive threats they had, I thought they were going to defend at a high level. And they're just, they're 30th in defense, they're 21st in offense. And outside of Greg Monroe, you don't really know where that offense is going to come from. So I, I just don't know how they write the ship right now. Yeah, you're right. I did expect them to take a step back defensively just because of the way they played the second half of the season. But you're right. I didn't think that they would be the worst team so far in terms of defensive efficiency in the NBA. That, to me, is just so strange. And you're right. Players like Michael Carter-Williams, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe these are guys that are given too much credit for what they can do on the defensive end. But he sure looks like someone who can play solid defense, and it just hasn't happened yet in Milwaukee I'm not sure what to think of that team. Even with the record so far and the way they've struggled, I still have this feeling that, you know, as long as they can keep close in some of these games, and they have, they've lost quite a few close games so far, you know, they they might start to win some of those close games. Things might start to to bounce back for them. So that that to me is a big game because Milwaukee and Detroit, those that could be two teams fighting for that those last couple spots in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year. Well, obviously the defense is bad because of Greg Monroe. 
So <laughs> we know, obviously we know why their defense sucks. Uh, Greg, not, I have to believe it now. I don't know what else to think. <laughs> Greg in yep, a losing effort. In case it wasn't. <laughs> Greg in a losing effort, Monroe, as he's known <laughs> right, on the Twitters. Exactly. Yeah, I try not to, Sean. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. He's not on our team anymore, so I have to let it go a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. He's playing. But, he's playing well enough in Milwaukee. Well, ben, what you're smart. You're smarter than me, so <laughs> what am I not seeing about these Bucks? Why are they so bad on defense? I don't understand the defensive part of their problems because I agree with you. On paper, they have a very interesting set of players. They're long. They're athletic. They were coming off of a very solid defensive season a year ago. I think they have a quality coach. I, I actually like what, what's happening there. I think their point guard play is just atrocious. I think... Michael Carter Williams is absolutely the wrong fit. I've never been a believer in him. I'm I'm also roughly zero percent convinced that he's an NBA point guard. Um, I thought Vasquez might be a good fit there. He hasn't really done much uh, done much yet either. And Middleton hasn't really had the season that he had last year so far either. But it's still so early. Uh, whenever you see teams make huge acquisitions that really impact. Uh, the structure and the foundation of the team, like the Bucks, you know, trading for um, Carter Williams last year, sort of toward the ends of the year, and then picking up Greg Monroe. You know, it's not uncommon for teams to struggle a bit, and they're still five and eight. They're not out of it. Mm-hmm. We're only what one eighth of the way through the season. Um, I think they're. I think they have to get better. I think they have enough talent where they're. They have to get better. But I would not be at all surprised to see them make a change at point guard. I don't. I think they need somebody who can shoot the ball a little bit. Um, and, you know, when we look at really bad offensive teams, that often leads to a lot of transition looks for the opponents, which means your defensive numbers get worse. So I haven't watched a lot of them, so I, I can't say that that's 100% the case. But um, when you have a bad offense and you're constantly running back in transition, it's hard to set up and play good defense. You're right, especially when they turn the ball over as much as they have so far uh, through the start of the season. But you know what they're missing and I, th- I thought of this the other night when they were playing Cleveland. They could really use a Brandon Knight. And it's uh, it's yeah. almost too bad that they lost him, especially with how well he's playing in Phoenix, because that, to me, seems like what they're missing. I'm kind of looking through their rankings right now. Actually, I wonder if this sort of lack of offensive production, lack of point guard play, uh, is making them play small to kind of manufacture some points. Because one thing that's kind of surprising to me, because they have Greg Monroe and John Henson, they're last in the league in rebounding, I believe, or close to it. That's really surprising. Yeah. And, you know, Greg Monroe is a good rebounder. Make no mistake. You know, you can think he has other flaws, but he can rebound the basketball. And uh, they don't sh- they don't guard uh, either the two or the three well. They don't get fast break points. Uh, they turn the ball over too much. It, I guess it's just kind of a perfect brew of a non-functioning offense right now, and that's bleeding into their defense. Well, I think that makes for a very easy transition to teams with inherent flaws on the offensive end. Let's talk about our team. Uh, Mike Payne had a post recently on Detroit Bad Boys talking about flaws in SVG's offense. Uh, is there a flaw in Stan Van Gundy's offensive scheme? I would say, Mike, the way that I read Mike's critique is that he he's argued for a long time on our site that when you look back at the last 10 15 to 20 years of NBA championship teams most of those teams not all of them but most of them have 
traditional big men in that they, you know, they're not necessarily the four out one in sort of system that SVG came to be known for while he was in Orlando. And obviously it appears that he's trying to, to construct here in Detroit. Um, so I think Mike's point is that that foundation, regardless of the pieces of the puzzle, um, is at least a little bit suspect, or maybe a more accurate way would, to put it would be that sort of a system has not yet proven that it consistently that it can consistently win NBA championships. So that's really how I read Mike's overall critique. And then within the context of that system, he has what I think are very accurate critiques of several of the pieces that are uh, SVG has put into his system, um, particularly the lack of shooting. He was really hard on KCP, and I think that was fair. Um, and then I think he was also um, very accurate in his read on Andre Drummond. Um, it wasn't necessarily a critique of Andre Drummond. It was a critique of the way that Van Gundy is using Andre, Andre Drummond, uh, and that's the way I'm reading it, and I totally agree with him. Um, trying to make Andre Drummond into a Dwight Howard when it seems clear to me and clear to Mike that that's not the player that he currently is. And then uh, he had some other critiques of Reggie Jackson. Is Reggie Jackson the type of point guard who can orchestrate this entire system? And so far to this point in the season, Reggie has been high and he's been low, but I don't think what he's been at all yet is a really good orchestrator like a really good point guard that makes the system run when he's been good he's been freelancing and ad-libbing and that's worked out really well and I think that's ultimately what he's best at and when he's been bad I think Van Gundy has the good read on him it's as if he's making decisions before the play even unfolds and he's decided he's going to try to pass somewhere to try to attack this matchup or something like that so that's how I read Mike's critique and I think ultimately it's very fair in spite of the fact that the Pistons are you know just barely above 500 right now which is fine it's acceptable to be there there are some long-term weaknesses that are definitely present and in order to get to championship caliber play really have to be ironed out and addressed not just at the system level but at the roster level as well and the pushback I think I would have most on that piece is just a lot of the critiques, while they're fair and they're accurate for what we're seeing for the current version of the Pistons, is a lot of these were dis- distributional critiques. It was uh, they're putting too much offensive responsibility on Drummond. They're putting too much of how the offense runs on Reggie Jackson. But what they're really basing this on is uh, kind of a – a version of a Stan Van Gundy team that's only maybe 60% shaded in. There's still a lot of places to fill in before it's exactly what he wants. And I think those distribute, I can't even say that those distributional concerns go away when you add more pieces to this puzzle. They need another ball handler that can either spell Reggie Jackson play alongside Reggie Jackson. So there's an outlet that can make the offense function. There's more shooters or people that can create offense. So you're not just throwing it into Drummond on the block and asking him to score on those hook shots. Right now, the the offense is in a funk only because there's their three point shooters are missing, and so the the few players that can actually score are just putting too much on their own shoulders. There's a lot of times where this team is struggling, and it's like 
they want to just throw it into Andre Drummond so that he can get an easy score. And that's just not how this system should operate. And I don't think Stan Van Gundy thinks that the system should operate that way either. I think he wants to add more pieces so that they have to rely less on these inefficient pieces like Jackson and and Drummond. And then I think, uh, well, all the criticisms of KCP are accurate. It's because he's just taking a few too many shots. And I think he's not a selfish player. I think if uh, there were players out there that were hitting their shots at a high level, uh, KCP would... go to the side and kind of not take those looks and just be more of a passer, more of a defender, more of a rebounder. So, I mean, it's it's frustrating to watch right now, but I don't think that it's a problem with Stan system as much as it is this is still very much a work in progress and it's not nearly close to done. Who are examples then of the players who could shade in that other 40%? So, I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Reggie Jackson is probably SVG's long-term plan at point guard. Drummond is the long-term plan at center. And then I would say positions two, three, and four are probably up in the air. Who are the who are like real examples of players that are possible for us to obtain that can fit within the 1-5 system, assuming Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond? Well, I think they're certainly not really on the team right now. And I think that uh, the reason that they were so adamant or, I guess, hoping that Drummond would defer his free agency, they don't don't have plans to sign a Kevin Durant. What they want to do is create real depth and a real rotation. So, uh, as we mentioned before, a player like Ryan Anderson that you can put at the four, a player like Ersan Ilyasova, who is functioning well at his assigned spot as a stretch four. You sign a, a player or two to play shooting guard, and maybe you sign a, a better shooter than Contavious uh, Caldwell-Pope and a more reliable player than Jody Meeks. It's just filling in those gaps so that uh, nobody's kind of punching above their weight. And then that way, this this offense functions the way it was designed to. That way, when Reggie Jackson drives on the pick and roll, he has extreme confidence that when he hits a shooter, they're going to knock down their shot. And when the defense has that same thought, they're not going to leave that shooter, and it creates an easier lane to the basket for Jackson. Right now, it's just we're a very top-heavy team. It's it's Reggie Jackson, Andre Drummond, and then you start praying. Uh, and it those gaps just have to be filled in. And then I think you can uh, adequately critique Stan Van Gundy's offense because he doesn't have his Richard Lewis and Hato Turkoglu yet. Far from it, I'd say. That was going to be my next question. If this team is built with those magic teams in mind, what do you attack next? Is it that stretch four spot? Is it trying to find someone on the wings that can be another ball handler and 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 give us some offense for um, you know someone else besides Reggie Jackson. What is the the next piece that comes along? I think it has to be a secondary ball handler. <laughs> I was about to say the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just based on what we're seeing, it's it's definitely somebody that can handle the ball because they have ostensibly they have people that should be shooters, but they have nobody that can give them the ball. And when you see Reggie Jackson struggling, I mean. He's uh, an up-and-down player, but what you would want is, if he's having an off night, 
you just don't rely on him as much. But Detroit has no other options, really, on the floor or in his place. So they're kind of stuck, and that just exacerbates the problem. So you bring in another ball handler, and it really makes a pick-and-roll system function. And then you just pray that those guys start hitting open shots. Right, and as optimistic as many of us are about Stanley Johnson and how optimistic we were in the preseason, seeing how he played in summer league, it's unfair to put that role on him this early in his career. It's it's difficult to do that to a 19-year-old who right now just needs to work into his role and, and continue to improve uh, as he becomes a professional in this league. So you're right. I think that's that's something we need to find. And if we aren't one of those teams that can fi- that can woo the big free agents, and I don't think we are. At least I I do have some faith in Stan Van Gundy with how aggressive he has been trading and moving assets. And that's something that gives yeah. me a little bit of faith about how this team will be built in the future. I mean, essentially, my best case scenario for this upcoming office season is to run into another Phoenix Suns situation where a team that thinks they have a legitimate shot at a superstar is ready to trade pennies on the dollar for assets that can be plugged into the rotation and the Pistons essentially give up nothing because that's what this cap space was probably created for more than signing people in free agents. It's to exploit the trade market to really fill this team out. And I think all of that is completely fair, Sean. I think those are all good points. I, I'm sort of torn internally and kind of the same where you are around the short game versus the long game. Um, I think if I had, you know, if I were forced to guess, I would guess that Van Gundy sold Tom Gores on a three-year plan. He got a five-year contract, but he said, give me three years to reshape this and I'll be in the playoffs. And I think even now, even though they're playoff caliber in the sense that they'll be fighting for a playoff spot if they stay healthy, I, I tend to think as much as I maybe don't want it to, be the case as a fan that Vigundi's still playing the long game that he, you're probably right this is 40 to 60 percent shaded in and the rest of this is just making do you know so it's it's Marcus Morris he's your third option by default just because there's no one else um, Ilya Silva and Tolliver sort of piecemealing the power forward position together until you can find a long term solution I think all of that is totally and completely fair and I think ultimately it's probably what's happening the one thing I will say though that I think uh, was a point that Mike made that I think gets lost is that um, if you look at the NBA championship teams again of the last decade or two decades they had more than one player who was capable of scoring the ball not just in the post but in the paint and getting to the free throw line. Um, So not only do we need a secondary ball handler, in my opinion, we need somebody who can create buckets inside or at points at the free throw line. Because if, if you're built around three point shooting and the pick and roll and that's it, I think you're set up and prone to be a really, really inconsistent team. And Phil Jackson actually has talked a lot about this and has made me consider this a lot because the rage right now in the NBA is three-point shooting, um, but it's still absolutely critical to be able to score the ball inside. That doesn't mean a post player, but it means somebody who can get to the basket and score in the paint. And, you know, I I think that those players are just harder to come by than, you know, just saying, oh, I'm going to go get one next year the next time I have free agent money. So I guess when I ask the question, 
who are realistic examples of players who can fit the system, that's sort of what I'm driving at, is that I think it's harder to find some of these players than just having, you know, $15 million in free agency lying around. So I guess for me, that's why I'm still a little bit skeptical. I'm more optimistic than I've ever been about the Pistons, but I'm still a little bit skeptical and sympathetic to Mike's point because I think those kinds of players are actually pretty hard to get. Yeah, and to to your earlier point about playing the long game, I mean, if you really – we're into this every single day. We live and buy by every game. But if you really take a step back, you can count the number of significant moves. And Stan McGundy has made a ton of moves. He's made exactly one significant move and significant investment in this entire team, and that's Reggie Jackson. Everything else has sort of been window dressing. It's just – little bits here it's filling uh stopgap solutions there so it's not like he's gone all in on a player other than reggie jackson so he's still got a long way to go to building the team long term that he wants and if he does sign somebody in free agency i'm telling you right now uh after i heard his interview with zach Lowe on the on zach Lowe's podcast he's gonna give a player a max contract that you'll be shocked to be receiving a max contract because that's just the mentality that Van Gundy has. If if he sees a player that's worth $13 million a year, he's going to give him $16 million a year just so he can get the guy he wants and move on. Right. I mean, that that's essentially what he admitted to when he was talking about signing Richard Lewis. And with all the cap room coming in, uh, if he sees a high-value player in free agency, they'll give him the max no matter what. Yeah, you're right. And that was one of my favorite talking points before – uh, the free agency this summer was so many NBA people and so many things I read. You know what teams need to do, what contenders need to do is they need to find the next Damari Carroll. And I thought it was so unfair to frame it that way because it's really difficult to do that to just find a veteran who has yet to really break out, but is going to come at a, is going to come at a small price and then expect to get more out of that investment. I think it's really unfair to ask for someone like. Aaron Baines or some of these smaller moves uh, that the Pistons have made to be the move that kind of puts us over the top. So, Sean, you're right. We we probably just have to get com- comfortable with the idea that if there's a player we can target that Stan Van likes, he's probably going to have to overpay for that person to bring him to Detroit if he's going to be someone who you know can kind of take this team to the next level. Yeah, I mean that's just where this team is at right now. They're just they're at that point where. They're not ready to go to the next level yet as much as we want them to be there. And Stan Van Gundy knows that. And once he sees the player that he thinks is going to make them take the next step, he's just going to open up the wallet. Is there, and this is way too early for that conversation. I don't even know if I want to ask it. Is there anyone in this free agency, this upcoming free agency that could fit that that mold? I know there was a, I know there was a post on Detroit Bad Boys about Kevin Durant. And I think that's I can't I would I would be shocked if the Pistons were a team in the market for Kevin Durant. But is there anyone this summer that that we could target like that? I would hope they make a pitch to Durant. I mean, it seems like a super unlikely thing to happen, but I would hopefully they at least try because they're going to have. I mean, you look at what they have surrounding him. If they were able to get him, you know, it, I wouldn't say they're a contender right away, but they'd be awfully close. And a player I was thinking of, and I mentioned this on Twitter a month or two ago, is uh, a player out of nowhere where I could see Van Gundy inexplicably giving somebody a max 
And this is only if this player can play both center and power forward. But uh, the Rockets, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, Donitus Montayunas. Yes, sure, definitely. He, Donuts uh, Montezuma. <laughs> he's, uh, I was looking at his stats for whatever reason. I was bored. He's the only player in the NBA who shot uh, better than 55% in a post-up and better than 36% from three. I mean, he's that inside-outside player. And uh, he's, I think, youngish. He's a seven-footer. I'm, I'm not sure he has the mobility to play power forward. But if he could, and that was a legitimate option, it would just seem like such a Van Gundy thing to do to inexplicably give that guy like 90 million bucks. And another one to throw out there, especially because this player has struggled shooting a bit this season, Harrison Barnes. Is that, that someone that you think could kind of fit what Stan Van Gundy's looking for? I think it makes sense, but I'm not I'm not even sure how you pry him away from the Rockets. Sure. I mean, they're, they're set up so well to re-sign their own guys, and who would want to leave Golden State? I mean, that's crazy. You're right. I have to think about free agency differently now. That team is built to re-sign their own players, and with the cap going up, they can keep Harrison Barnes on the team. It, it's... It doesn't seem fair. And you think maybe we can pry one of the players off of Golden State's team. Uh, that's probably the one that seems most likely that could leave. But you're right. I, I think they, it would be tough to, tough to see him actually leaving Golden State. Yeah. If only Draymond Green was adamant about playing for his hometown team this offseason, we would be the number one ranked team in the East, no question. Because that guy's yeah, that, like that crazy. Yeah, that crazy guy wanted to live in California and play for a historically good team on uh, a ninety million or whatever dollar contract. What a crazy! Right? Result. Doesn't he realize how much I would have cheered for him? <laughs> I think he realized he plays a winter sport, and being <laughs> in Detroit might not be a lot of fun. He's he's already been through that, right? He can been just enjoy, right? He can just enjoy California now. So I think that just about wraps up this week of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Uh, we didn't get to the mailbag this week. Send in your questions for next week's episode. Hashtag AskDBB. You can do that on Twitter. Uh, and even just using the handle at Detroit Bad Boys or just using uh, the hashtag AskDBB to send us questions that way, and we'll make sure to get to them next week. Uh, so for myself, Jordan Ballant, thank you so much for listening. Uh, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. Find us on Blog Talk Radio uh, and comment and let us know what you think of this episode on Detroit Bad Boys as well. We love the feedback. We've gotten some great feedback so far. So for myself, Ben Galker, and Sean Core, thanks for listening.